Francis promotes sin and error. Democracies fail to represent. In this episode of Church and State, Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara discuss how Francis serves as a great clarifier. His program, including the current synod, is a severe intensification of modernist errors. But it follows the same post-Vatican II trajectory of his predecessors. So do Catholics have a positive duty to resist errors and proclaim the truth? They discuss how in the state, so-called representative government is destroying real representation. The division of powers in government, a hallmark of democracy, is breaking down all over the world. So, what should serve as the real check and balance to unbridled state power? Welcome to another edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall. It's good to see you, Chris. It's been a couple of weeks. Yes, it has. Good to see you, too. Yeah, I've uh, actually been down to South America and back. I was down speaking at uh, actually one of those conferences you and I've been to, the Union of Catholic Jurists. Oh, uh, once their conference in Bogota? No, uh, we were in Bogota. This one was down in Sao Paulo in Brazil this time. Oh, so. okay. But uh, back from that. So uh, the world's been progressing along the lines we usually talk about. But, uh, more bad the, news. Uh, more bad news. Well, in the church, we're really ramping up for this sin, synod on sin, as I like to call it, uh, which who knows what's going to come out of it. It's not, not good. It seems to be lined up. But what the, does it do to say things like that? I mean, obviously, there's a strong argument to be made that in 2,000 years of church history, we've never had a pope more inimical to tradition than this pope. Mm. But what good does it do to declare him a non-pope when, in fact, even a rank heretic's entitled to a hearing, an opportunity to recant, and mm. proof of his obduracy or obstinacy and heresy? And you can't do any of those things with the pope. There's no tribunal that has jurisdiction mm. over him. And so there's no practical benefit to making such declarations what we do know is that to the extent that this Pope departs from tradition, which he does almost daily, we simply ignore I mean, him. Hourly. Ignore him. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's understandable. I sympathize, but it, this is sort of the danger of getting too wrapped up in this. Like, you're going to solve the problem. You're going to, you're going to know the key to fixing this and you're going to make your YouTube video and declare this and, and the church will be fixed. I mean, it's not, not typically the way. <laughs> These things happen. Um, well, the problem with these Internet gurus is that they develop cult-like followings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's nice to have a following, but what, what is the practical benefit of a following based on the notion that we don't have a pope? Mm-hmm. He's not helping the situation. What we have to do, obviously, is raise opposition to the novelties of this pope, as we have been doing since the post-conciliar crisis began with pope after pope. This is, after all, the end point of a trajectory, a mm. downward trajectory that, that the future Pope Benedict called the continuing process of decay since the council. It's undeniable that there has been a process of decay in the church, which is accelerating. And clearly, it's reached what has to be, if not a terminal phase, almost a terminal phase of this crisis. Mm. And that's an important point, because, again, it, Bergoglio, as Pope, has certainly 
increased the intensity of what's going on. But really, I mean, as you say, really what he's doing is not on a different trajectory from Paul VI through really Benedict XVI. I mean, he himself, Bergoglio says, I've not moved one inch from Vatican II. I'm just implementing Vatican II. So, I mean, in a sense, getting rid of Bergoglio doesn't solve the problem because if we're on this trajectory, we're just going to end up with another, you know, if we return the clock back an hour, we're just going to end up back where we are in another hour. Well, the way I see it with Benedict, though, is he did make an effort to arrest, if not reverse, the trajectory with a couple of acts Mm -hmm. of governance that uh, threatened in the eyes of the progressives to bring about an actual restoration. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, he liberated the Latin Mass with some more in pontificum. He lifted the excommunication of bishops of the Society of St. Pius X. Mm-hmm. And in terms of liturgy, aside from liberating the traditional mass, he corrected some of the egregious mistranslations of the Novus Ordo liturgy. For example, he restored for you and for many instead of for you and for all. And he got rid of the ridiculous and with you also and replaced the correct wording of and with your spirit. So everyone is dutifully reciting those corrected translations. So he was going in the right direction, but then he resigned. Right. Under very suspicious circumstances. We'll never know the whole of it, I think, not in this life anyway. And then Bergoglio comes along. Yes, he's part of the same trajectory, but let's consider this. We've never had a pope who conducted a frontal assault on the natural law in Mm. terms of adultery and deviant sexuality, to which he seems very sympathetic. That's something new, even in Mm. this epoch of total confusion in the church and what we call the regime of novelty. That is a new stage of development, the attack on basic morality itself. He's certainly taken it to new heights, but the principles that he claims to act out of are the principles of Vatican II, ecumenism, religious liberty, conscience, in the sort of vague Vatican II sense. Uh, And really, until the church purges herself of those viruses, those sort of tools are there for a future pope to develop. Well, I think Romano Amerio put it best when he talked about the spirit of the council. I mean, mm-hmm. the literal text, I think it was it was Bishop Fillet who said something to the effect that we adhere to more of Vatican II than the progressives. <laughs> but the spirit of the council represents what Amerio calls the loss of essences in post-conciliar mm-hmm. thinking. Well, what does that mean? It means basically the gradual obliteration of the distinction between one thing and another. So, for example, the distinction between being in the church and out of the church, the distinction between true religion and false religion, the Mm. distinction between natural religion and revealed religion, the distinction between right and wrong conduct in terms of the negative precepts of the natural law, to which there are no exceptions. Mm. Now we have an ecumenism of morality where the moral standard of the the negative precept, which is an absolute, is reduced to a benchmark. And then you say, well, we're striving to achieve full communion with the natural law. But in the meantime, there are gradations of obedience to the law that we can accept. Well, that's nonsense. This is a binary proposition. Thou shalt not. Either you're in in obedience to those commandments or you're not. There are no gradations of obedience. It's a strict command laid upon us by the divine law and the natural law. And John Paul II said in his encyclical on morality that there are no exceptions. They are binding these commandments, the negative precepts, in all circumstances, 
without exception. And this mm-hmm. pope has embarked on a program of saying, well, there could be exceptions depending on your concrete circumstances. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, again, what's the, the sort of legal or juridical problem with just you or me or, well, I just get to decide. I, I think this, this, this is enough. Is that the way the church is meant to function? You can't function that way. And what is, what is the quantum of proof, by the way? Is it uh, one supposed heresy, two, three, six, ten, twelve? When do you weigh in the balance and find that, uh, well, this is the last straw of heresy, so yeah. now we declare the Pope is not the Pope. It's a useless declaration. It can't, it can't be enforced. It doesn't bind anybody but the declarant who thinks that that's the case. So what is the practical benefit of the declaration? There is no practical benefit. Hmm. It's essentially a distraction, a shiny object that appeals to some people who make themselves feel better by saying, well, this man can't be the Pope. Well, what difference does it make to us, practically speaking? None. Again, the only approach we can take to to a Pope like this is simply not to follow him when he errs. When he says things that depart from tradition, we're effectively saying those are not papal pronouncements. Those are his pronouncements as a person. Yeah. And that's really the root of the problem is a distorted notion of papal authority. Because if you believe I have to do whatever the Pope says, or if the Pope says I think you should eat uh, chocolate cake for breakfast, then I just have to do it, then you are in a bind because you, you can't, you have no way out of if he says uh, go commit adultery and I have to obey him, I'm going to go do it. But if you have a proper sense of obedience and what obedience means, this isn't an irresolvable problem, as you say. You just don't follow him when he's saying something wrong. Not only that, not only do we not follow him, we have a duty positively to resist yes. by, stating, by stating the truth in the face of his errors. And St. Thomas teaches this very clearly in the Summa when he speaks of the encounter between St. Paul and Peter when Peter refuses to dine with the Gentiles, giving scandal. Mm-hmm to the burgeoning church, the infant church, which was the universal church. He was sending the message that the church that Christ founded is not for the Gentiles, so he won't eat with Mm -hmm. them. It was a major scandal. And St. Paul says, I withstood him to his face Mm. because he was blameworthy. So not only do we have to say we're not following that, we have to say this is wrong and we must oppose it. And now we see certain high-ranking cardinals all willing to say that as well. Yes. And I, won't, that, that, I won't name them for fear of them being liquidated. <laughs> well, definitely sites are being pointed at certain cardinals and bishops. We, we know that. But as I said, next month we're back. Uh, we'll have to see because all the signs, I mean, if, if this, this synod is really shaping up to take this to all new levels with uh, particularly probably with some kind of blessing of same-sex quote-unquote marriage, uh, end of celibacy, that women or some form of ordination, uh, you know, they want to become Anglicans, is what it looks like. Oh, there's no question that's what they want to do. We'll see what the outcome actually yeah. is. I'll be in Rome in the immediate aftermath of the Synod on Synodality, what a ridiculous name that is, to comment on whatever the fallout is from that potentially catastrophic event. Yeah, so it's my absolutely. To be able to participate in that conference by LifeSite News and co-sponsored by the Fatima Center. Oh, you're not going to be at the Synod. You weren't invited by Pope Francis to be a voting member. I'm surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I think he does have a token traditional Catholic or two on the Synod. Uh, (laughs) 
And by the way, this whole process of synodality, which is supposed to represent the voice of the Holy Ghost, right. percolating upward from below to inform the church of the latest bulletin from the beyond, that's all <laughs> nonsense. This is just a device for him, meaning Bergoglio, to exercise his personal will. It's all, as, it's all, as they all it's have all been. dog and pony show for, for the implementation yeah. of what he wants. Absolutely. Well, talking about that implementing what one wants, we're going to switch over to the state. And one of the things we've certainly seen in the United States as the globalists really try to get their grasp completely on the levers of power here is the weaponization of the third branch, the judicial branch of government. And we've seen this lots of ways through the FBI, spying on traditional Catholics, and most obviously with the four, I think it's up to now, I mean, Tuesday must be another indictment uh, Four indictments against former president Donald Trump, who not just former president, but the leading candidate to run against the incumbent. So this is definitely an issue of this, this sort of exertion of judicial power to interfere in the political process. And I saw a story that's been developing in Israel this past week, which sort of seems to show this being a bit of a, a global trend. So Benjamin Netanyahu was once again, he, elected, uh, put together a, a coalition government's prime minister of Israel. He is detested by the sort of liberal global elites. And he started butting heads with the Supreme Court of Israel, who apparently, they don't have a written constitution there, but claim the power to strike down any government action that they decide is unreasonable. So early in his term, earlier this year, one of his ministers, he appointed to his ministry, so like a cabinet post, they just said, no, unreasonable. There were apparently some trumped-up charges against him for something, and they just said, oh, it's unreasonable for him to do the minister threw him out. They've tried to veto other laws that were passed by the legislature there as unreasonable. So Netanyahu, who, who has a commanding, you know, decent majority in the legislature, the parliament, passed a law saying Supreme Court cannot strike things down on a vague standard of unreasonableness. They have to show something more specific. And now... It ends up in front of the Supreme Court to decide whether they're allowed to actually have this right to strike things down. So what are your thoughts on this? This situation is developing. Well, it's obviously symptomatic of a breakdown in the so-called division of powers. That's supposed to be the hallmark of modern democracy. But the anti-federalists predicted from the beginning that the so-called division of powers would, as uh, one of them said, be nothing more than the walls in the buildings housing the different government offices. <laughs> what we, we, we end up dealing with one big monolith, and depending upon uh, whose ox is being gored, one part of the monolith or other will exceed its power. So now we see in the United States both things happening. We see mm. the judicial uh, excesses of activist courts usurping the will of the legislature, and then we see also the legislative branch usurping the authority of the constitutional order, as with the reform of the election procedures, when legislatures authorized mail-in balloting, even though that requires a constitutional amendment. Uh, and then we see, of course, the executive branch abusing its authority by weaponizing itself in the form of indictments against political opponents of the regime. So all three branches of government in this country or exceeding their bounds and transgressing into the supposed authority of the other two branches. Well, isn't I mean, the root of that, the real, quote, check and balance on unbridled power 
has been cast aside, and that was for centuries the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church was there to be that check on the, the secular government, exercising what Father Fahey called the indirect power, to say, look, you, you've gone out of bounds here. This is this cannot be done, either you're translating the moral law, you're persecuting people, and acted to try to restrain that. And you know, that in the last two centuries has been just cast off. Yeah, and then we see the uh, the Italian political philosopher Agamben essaying this whole issue of emergency powers, which mm. came to the fore during the so-called pandemic. And of all places, it, it fell to the Simpsons, that cartoon show, to enunciate <laughs> the principle at work here, that if you allow government to break the law during an emergency, government will create an emergency in order to break the law. Yes. That should be on a, that should be on a t-shirt. So with these, <laughs> with these emergency powers, we see taken to a whole new level what results from a government that knows no constraint and knows no authority beyond itself, which is the raw will to power. Hmm. The only standard for governance is I will it so, and I will have it so. So let it be written. So let it be done. And the hmm. people are powerless against a government like this because there's no body. No intermediary body standing between them and the government, which used to be the church. Hmm. Now there's nothing. It's just the naked individual and his one vote against the monolithic government. And the monolithic government informs the individual, well, this is the action of your elected representatives or the action of the judges who were chosen by your elected representatives or the actions of the executive branch who appointed the officials that were appointed after you elected the president. So uh, Pierre Menant has said the principle of representation basically extinguishes all rights eventually, so-called mm. rights, because everything that is done is supposedly done in the name of the representative that you supposedly authorized to do these things. And again, there's well, no check on it because there's no church to stand in the way. And you're right. The root of this is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? And and again, is the general will. So. Again, his idea is it is all raw power, but whatever the general will is, which, you know, for a period, democracy allows me to have your little votes and you express it. But ultimately, it sort of gets wrapped up in this. Well, we, the experts, know what the general will is. And so be quiet and get out of our way and let us implement what we know you really want better than you do yourself. Well, this is what Rousseau says. How can you resist the general will? Because it's your will. Right. (laughs) <laughs> this is what we're told. This is the will of the people. But the will of the people is being thwarted left and right. I and mean, the will of the people is completely disregarded now by so-called representative government. And we have the permanent unelected bureaucracies running everything. The primary problem, I would say, today in America is emanating from the executive branch. And I mm. shudder to think what will happen if in the next election sane people don't regain control of the executive branch. We're already living in a virtual police state. It's going to get even worse unless we reverse that trend by clearing out the executive branch or draining the swamp, as Trump puts it. Yes. Well, and even on that front, our own Supreme Court may have something to say about that. This term, there's a case coming up where, you know, they might, they're postured where they might overturn the so-called Chevron Doctrine to sort of allow Congress to just check out and leave everything to the executive branch, a decision that was really the, the birth of the administrative state. So uh, yeah, the, the, few the, of the, the justices, 
Yeah, a few of the justices have expressed, you know, a potential to re- revisit that. That would be a very auspicious development because it would end this ridiculous deference to the so-called experts <laughs> in executive branch agencies. The same experts, by the way, who prescribed measures during the COVID <laughs> so-called pandemic, every one of which was exactly the opposite of what should have been done. Right. And based on no science. What's yeah, they were, they were wrong about absolutely yeah. everything, as was demonstrated. Hmm. Well, I guess that looks like Chris is kind of frozen. Maybe that brings us uh, to the end of our time, I guess. Thank you, Chris. It was good uh, talking to you, although you seem to be frozen. Uh, with that, we'll leave it and uh, leave the hands of Our Lady of Fatima, and we'll see you hopefully in a couple of weeks. Church and State with Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara is brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. The message of Fatima is the solution for our time. Only she can help us. It is therefore urgent that we live according to Our Lady's message and share it with everyone we know. For more resources and to support this vital apostolate with your donation visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us, and long live Christ the King.